we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and in every episode here at the Cabin in the Woods located somewhere in the wilds of West Cork, I investigate stories of the strange with an attitude that I hope is critical but not cynical. We'll take on stories of ghosts, monsters, UFOs, hauntings, and even occasionally fringe political beliefs in order to find out what's really going on. Now, on this episode, we return to the world of the supernatural strange, as I'm joined by guests Steve and Emmy from the Misfits and Mysteries podcast. Uh, On this episode, we are going to tackle the story of the Montauk Project from New York State. Now, this is a very strange one, a very large and uh, multi-sided story with lots of different elements to it, and to my mind at least, kind of lacking a single core through narrative. So for that reason, we're going to try and cover as many of the different weird stories attached to the Montauk Project in conspiracy lore as we can. In this regard, the story reminds me a tiny little bit of the work of John Keel, and in particular his promotion of the idea of high strangeness, and also the stories associated with Skinwalker Ranch. So if the story seems a little bit shapeless, I think that's perhaps because it is. It is, however, a fascinating example of how a particular strange area tends to gather a litany of different kinds of urban legends and conspiracy theories all about it. Now, today's ale uh, for this episode is Harris Pale Ale from Treaty City Brewing in Limerick. It's a well-balanced hop-forward pale ale inspired by a Limerick Hellraiser. I presume they're referring to the actor Richard Harris. A generous helping of Cascade hops gives this tawny-coloured ale a citrus and floral aroma and flavour. Well, all I can say is it's rather nice and rather difficult to get a hold of here in County Cork, so I'm glad to do so. With all of that said, I'm going to jump into the interview with Steve and Emmy. We're going to be talking about the very strange Montauk project, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, we have Steve and Emmy here with us for the episode. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, it's uh, always exciting to talk to folks from your side of the pond. Um, uh, People who listen to the show regularly know that I'm I'm a bit of an Americanophile. Uh, (laughs) I do do enjoy a lot lot of elements of there. And you're you're both in New York, is that correct? Yeah, we're in different parts of New York. I am... I'm in Westchester, right across from Long Island. So if I had a boat, I could probably get to Montauk <laughs> real quick, but I don't have a boat. Yeah, I, I grew up in uh, upstate New York, but currently living in New York City, which is very exciting. So not too far from Steve. Yeah, Excellent. we're real close. So, so I was excited about your location because it's tied to what we're going to talk about today. It's always good to get um, folks who are familiar with the area or with the terrain um, and let, let's talk about your show briefly. How would you, how do you describe it or what, what makes it special and unique? Yeah, so we run the Misfits and Mysteries podcast, of course, um, and it's a weekly podcast where we talk about everything from cryptids and aliens and, you know, all of that uh, superstition to 
psychology and history and everything in between. And, you know, Steve and I just have a lot of fun researching those types mm. of, um, those types of topics. So, you know, you can check us out anywhere you find podcasts, but yeah. that's kind of the, the rundown. We also occasionally talk sports and Bigfoot erotica. <laughs> <laughs> so folks, let's talk location for a moment. Where is Montauk from where you folks are? So do you want to know like distance wise or geography? Yeah. Geography are really people close. People on this side of, of the world don't even necessarily understand that New, New York state is large and has a very large New York state rural is area. Gigantic. People just know the city. <laughs> right. New York, New York state is gigantic. So <laughs> if I wanted to get to Montauk and I had a boat, I could get there in like two hours from where I live, but that's not a reality. So what I'd have to do is I'd have to drive from where my house is through Manhattan uh, into Long Island and go to the very tip of Long Island. So yeah. Montauk is at the very tip of Long Island and it's a resort community. And I thought it was hysterical because in the Huffington Post article I read, they say, it's res- they said, quote, um, rich and oh, sorry, it's from like the rich and famous. I didn't actually write a quote down. And it's really funny because it's also a place that like teenagers go to underage drink and party all the time. And they tried to like present it as this wonderful elitist place, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah. And, and Montauk is, is about three hours from New York city. It's on long Island, which is attached to New York city. Um, and it's, it's part of the Hamptons, which now this I have heard of. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the Hamptons is kind of where New York city's elite goes to kind of escape the city and they all have, you know, huge beach houses and it's very you know stereotypical just like super super wealthy people great gatsby yeah exactly okay wonderful yes west um, egg is not the name of the fictional place he goes to um i forget what west egg actually is but it's yeah so like there's west egg and east egg i forget what parts of long island those actually are oh another thing is people in new york say on long island not in long island it bugs me, but <laughs> it's the right way to say it. It's just, it's just a it weird thing. It you the way it bugs me when, when Americans say, I could care less, when they mean yeah. I could care the exact less. opposite. What's, what's that about? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But. So Montauk is, is an upscale place. It's a place where rich people have properties. And- so yes. it's, a rich, it's, a, it's an upscale place, but it's also kind of like a fishing village at the same time. Like I do know people who live there who are just like, their their job is being a fisherman so it's an interesting place where it's like very much like the like coastal elites and whatnot but there's also a level of it that's like grimy like soul to the earth work the west of, of our county there's a long coastline with lots of nice little fishing villages that you know were legitimate historical small towns but also there's an element of this is where people with money build their second homes and you've, yeah. got, you've got both of those things next to each other. Is it a, a rural area? Are we talking, do you have to go I, through a real countryside to get there out of the city? Or you no? know, Long Island's weird. There are areas that are farmland, but I don't think there's nearly as much farmland as there used to be, partially because every time we get a hurricane here, which is a few times a year, uh, they have absolutely no protection. They're right on the water. So I think I imagine that most of the farms probably have been destroyed by hurricanes. Montauk, I know during Hurricane Sandy, like everyone had to evacuate Montauk. Um, or I mean, I think the people that stayed died because it was real bad. 
So it's like Long Island is a place that gets hit really hard by hurricanes. Um, I mean, where I am, we get hit pretty hard, but not the same way that uh, Long Island does. There was so much damage after Sandy. I mean, Sandy was particularly bad for a lot of reasons in New York. And you think too, I mean, there's there's a difference between the people who live there year round and are involved in the fishing villages and the farmlands and then the people who live in New York City and vacation there during the summer. So yeah. there's kind of like that dichotomy there. Exactly. The, the, the exact location within Montauk, which is the focus of a lot of the kind of lore and, and urban legends, is a, it's like a disused military complex. Um, so it is a decommissioned, Camp Hero is a decommissioned um, Air Force base. It used to be in World War II, they set up, yeah, so in World War II, they set up all these um, batteries there to defend the, just to defend New York from potential U-boat attacks or submarines. So I guess U-boats would probably also be World War One. And the interesting thing about it is, they didn't want people knowing that there was a military base there, especially not the Germans or Russians, I guess, later. So they disguised every single military building to make it look like it was just a small fishing village, wow. which is really part of what really bred this conspiracy. This has come like, up so many times with us recently. We talked about, um, on our last bonus episode, we talked about uh, the British having all this military secrecy over things that were happening in, in World War One and how this bred conspiracies it, it always does you know it, it, mm. it, it whenever governments are being secretive about stuff you know it breeds conspiracy theories yeah i mean exactly. there's so a like a gymnasium i guess they call it to like train um soldiers was literally a church like it, it looks like a church on the outside but all it was was in real life like people know this now because the church is decaying because no one's upkept it but they just slapped um, a fake church exterior on top of a training gym for uh, for soldiers. So you know the main structure you always see in articles about the Montauk project. It's this very mm -hmm. quite iconic building with a gigantic sort of radar dish. Yeah, on top you of can it. see that for miles around if you go like oh, on the water cool. and stuff. So it's it's really huge, is it? Yeah, gigantic. Yeah. It's a, it's a it's an iconic building, and it's it like it looks like the kind of place that would naturally become the focus of. Of, of urban legends, especially if it's, it's surrounded by a park. Is that correct? So it was turned into a park because um, there's protected ecosystems there. And it took them a while to let people go. So they closed it down. So it was, it was a mix up. They closed it down because it was a military base. So the Army Corps of Engineers had to go in and make sure there was no like landmines or unexploded grenades or bullets. So that took about a decade to do. And they deemed it like a, a very important ecosystem because it's on the coastline. I don't know for sure, but one of the like uh, protected ecosystems we have in this part of New York are uh, are swamp mar or sorry salt marshes. Uh, so there's a lot of like I don't know if they're endangered species or it's a really at risk uh, ecosystem. But just knowing the geography of this area, like all the salt marshes are protected areas. Yeah. When it comes to the the sort of legends about the place it's it's always struck me as one of these very vast many ch chambered uh, kinds of stories you know along the lines of you know the skinwalker or something like that where there's just so many different things that are supposed to have happened there that it's almost intimidating to to start researching because there are so many yeah. elements to it and it's hard to know 
I mean, as, as Charles Ford famously said, uh, you know, one measures a circle beginning anywhere. So <laughs> we, we may as well get started. Where, where, where you can start anywhere with this, couldn't you? Yeah, you could. Um, I mean, do we want to start with the project itself or do we want to start yeah, let's, or like let's do that. The conspiracies or do you want to start with like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Nichols or Nicholas. No, well, let's do, let's do Nichols. I, as far as I can tell, I think it starts with him. That's my, that's like, that's, yeah. I'm in the same boat. That's my understanding is, um, it starts with Preston Nichols. I didn't write down Preston for some reason. Um, so yeah, I guess where it started was in 1992, 11 years after the military base at Camp Hero was decommissioned. Um, Preston Nichols uh, published a book titled The Montauk Project Experiments in sorry, Montauk The Montauk Project Experiments in Time and he alleged that there are Nazi style experiments that meddled genetically and psychologically with local kidnapped boys yeah right. and uh, <laughs> so Nichols himself kind of claims to have been teleported to Montauk in 1986 and he says that he lived and worked um, in Camp Hero on the uh, Sage Radar Tower, which is that huge structure that you're talking mm-hmm. about with the, you know, rotating, um, what would you call it? Uh, it's just like satellite, a giant, yeah. satellite kind of thing. Satellite dish. Yeah. So that thing actually rotated. So it's been decommissioned for years, but it actually rotated south a few years ago. What? Inexplicably. What? By yeah. itself? <laughs> I mean, by itself. I can here. I'll. I think I have the article pulled up. Let me just see. It's underneath the oh, zoom. That's weird. Yeah. It. Uh. It was I like wonder big if some news. kids just broke in and managed somehow. I. Who. I mean, maybe, but it just one day it inexplicably. Um, I'm imagining this is the kind of place where like kids go drinking. Yeah. Well, there are. It's. Know. It's very blocked off where that. Oh yeah. It's. It's not. Is, it's not easy to get there. I'm gonna send this in the chat just so you can look at it. Okay, yeah. so it's, it's, it's not easy to access. In, in 20, I think the local kids know how to do it, though, because we have a few places like that near here. Yeah. In, okay. in 2011, it just it just shifted south randomly, even though it had been decommissioned since, allegedly <laughs> yeah. decommissioned since the 90s. Oh, that's Which I think spread and further they, they conspiracies. Do say, they do say when the um, radar kind of cycles around, the animals start freaking out and people get headaches. So that's Ooh. where a lot of this conspiracy theory comes from, too. And Preston Nichols and a lot of his quote-unquote followers actually wear like metal uh hats or like a a pot on their head or tin foils no, around yeah, their heads it, oh my which of course these days is an almost stereotypical conspiracy yeah. follower thing yeah. to do exactly the old tin foil I, hat i actually have found a quote about this that's insane from guarantee garantano who's the guy who made one of the documentaries According to him, every 12 seconds, the radar tower would rotate and there would be animals freaking out and people getting headaches and bad dreams. And, you know, people's electronic equipment would go haywire. Okay, that seems excessive. What animal or person would suffer through that? Just move away. You can't live somewhere. Every 12 seconds. Every 12 seconds is like, that's not something you can live with. So Nichols did this, as far as I understand, he did this thing in his book where he kind of did the classic... You know, I'm not. I'm not claiming this is true. It could be just sci-fi, but you know, you can believe it if you want to. Going to leave <laughs> yeah. that door open, which is always a clever thing to do when you're when you're when you're selling this sort of thing, because somebody somewhere will will take it at face value, and you know, some people yeah. do 
like this, this did grow a little bit of a, a legend around itself. It's not just a series of books. I mean, he, he eventually did become a series of books, but it's more than that. It's a bit of a legend around, around the area as well. And one thing he does, which I thought was actually quite clever for, let's say, world building purposes, is he links it mm. to the Philadelphia experiment, which was yeah. a, a separate pre-existing thing. So if you're into yeah. studying strange things, you'll have heard of the Philadelphia experiment. And it's a clever thing for him to, you know, create this new story and attach it to a pre-existing story. What I might, what I'm going to do, folks, I'm going to read briefly from uh, World Famous UFOs by Colin Wilson. Colin Wilson is a very strange guy. He wrote a lot of strange books. Um, he was a British guy and he was briefly famous in the 50s for writing philosophy. And then he mm -hmm. kind of went down the road of doing stuff like this. But he has a rather succinct um, description of the of the Philadelphia experiment. So Colin Wilson writes, he's writing about a UFO researcher in the 1950s called Morris Jessup. You may have come across this guy. He's, he's named in some of the Montauk conspiracy stuff. So. so he writes a book in the 50s called The Case for the UFO. Now, this, at this point, the UFO phenomena is still relatively new. You know, that the standard debut is considered to be 1947. So uh, Colin Wilson writes, Soon after the publication of The Case for the UFO, Jessup received two letters from a man who signed himself Carlos Allend, or Carl Allen, who made an extraordinary claim that in October 1943, the US Navy had tried inducing a tremendously powerful magnetic field on board a destroyer in Philadelphia, a ship called the USS Eldridge, which was a real ship. And um, you can look up the records of it. And apparently it wasn't where, he, it wasn't in Philadelphia yeah. at this particular date. But we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll print the legend, as they say in Hollywood. As a result, the ship became completely invisible while sailors on board became semi-transparent to one another's eyes. The ship itself vanished from its Philadelphia dock and reappeared at its other regular dock at Newport, Virginia. Half the crew, said Allend, became insane. Now, do you can you, do you have a rough idea of how, what distance that would be from uh, from Philadelphia, Philadelphia to, to Virginia? Yeah, just for a few those hundred of us. miles. Like, I I'd say maybe like two fifty, three hundred miles. So the, it, it, he, Wilson doesn't mention it here, but I know like there's extended versions of this legend where hmm. the sailors on board are you know flickering in and out of reality as the ship makes this jump through space. And you know, even, it actually might be less of a distance. Not thinking about it because. It goes Pennsylvania, Delaware, Virginia, and Philadelphia is 30 minutes from Delaware. So there's a chance it could only be like 100 miles. Anyway, it's, it's impressive. Yeah. It's, it's, to, it's, to more than, in the it's more than zero. But the story goes <laughs> that the, when the ship reappeared, like some of the crewmen were like stuck into, in the hull, you know, like as if they had reappeared, uh, mm -hmm. uh, rematerialized re in the same place as the metal of the ship. And that after the experiment... The, the, they were still affected by this and they, there's stories of them going into bars and getting in bar fights and then disappearing or flickering in and out of existence which is really dramatic spooky stuff i've always i've, I've always found this these details very haunting so mm -hmm. he writes all this greatly excited jessup because he had already formulated a similar theory about how ufos can appear and disappear he connected it with einstein's unified field theory um, and when, when he had been corresponding with this mysterious guy for some time, so you know he's getting all these letters from a, this fellow calling himself Allend. Jessup received an unexpected request to come to Washington by the Office of Naval Research, the ONR, and was shown a copy of his own book 
basically they had been po sent in the post copies of the case for the UFO by Jessup with all these annotations mm -hmm. written in the, on the side in like three different styles and three different types of writing. And they appear to be three different people having some kind of conversation through the margins of this guy's UFO book. Interesting. Yeah, That's it's so, cool. it's so, it's such a long winded way of doing this. And they're right. telling a story um, that kind of expanding upon this idea of the USS Eldridge and the US trying these, you know, weird experiments in, in transporting, you know, ships by doing something with powerful mm -hmm. magnets and, and um, Einstein's unified field theory. Subsequently, the Department of Naval Research had 25 copies of the book duplicated and apparently sent to various offices in the department. But three years later, in April 1959, Jessup was found dead in his parked station wagon in Dade County Park, Miami, with a hose connecting the exhaust to the interior of the car. Wow. So, yeah, classic UFO conspiracy thing is when, you know, one of the people looking into it comes to a mysterious end. Now, right. Jessup was, was having a hard time in his life. From what I know, his books weren't selling. His career was going downhill. Mm -hmm. And it, it does seem likely that he just committed suicide. But yeah, you, you know, as well as I do in, in conspiracy culture, nobody ever just commits suicide. Right. <laughs> Anybody <laughs> who is uh, researching strange things and then comes to a, a nasty end, you know, it, there has to be a connection. Yeah. yeah. So wow. that's, that's what I know connection. about the Philadelphia experiment. Yeah. And actually it, kind of connecting the two, um, the Philadelphia experiment and the, and the Montauk project. Um, have you come across Al Bilek? Yeah. Al claims to have been on um, one of the ships of the Philadelphia project that kind of. Oh, yes. yes I did come across him. In the eighties. Is this later? Uh, yes, this is in the eighties. Okay. Yep. So he is kind of, you know, says that he was on the ship and then gets teleported um, to the Montauk project where he works on, um, you know, all of these crazy experiments that they're doing. And he actually finds this out through sort of a, um, he's doing these new age theories and, and recovering all of these quote unquote repressed memories of him doing these experiments and um, all of that. So he's recovering these memories and he tells this to a conference of people in 1990, um, how, you know, he had his memory wiped and he was working on this and he was part of the Philadelphia experiment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and at the time, Preston Nichols is sitting in the audience of this oh, conference no that he's talking about. Um, and the two chatted up after the conference and have a great conversation and um, kind of figure out that they may have been working on the Montauk project together. Oh, so wow. That's, I think, how Preston Nichols kind of made that connection. Do they then go on to write books together? Because... That sounds like it sounds like an opportunity. I, I smell, <laughs> I smell I greenbacks. Think... I smell dead presidents. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't think that uh, that Al was involved in in the Montauk Project book per se. But... I love I love recovered memories. It's such a trope in in this stuff. You know, it's um, yeah. we had yeah. an episode in my old show, which I might re-upload to this show at some point when I'm basically when I'm up against a, a deadline and I just don't have time for something just because life gets in the way. I have yep. a few episodes I can pull out of the 
out of the vault. And we did one on, I don't know if you've ever heard of the story of Bridie Murphy, which is a, a I think a New York. I don't York, think so. Oh, don't quote me on that. No, it was somewhere in the US in the 50s. This housewife is is hypnotized by a guy called Maury Bernstein, who was a kind of amateur hypnotist. And he's interested in regression therapy and taking her back through earlier parts mm-hmm. of her life. And which we now understand to be not what what literally is happening. Right. That's what but, our first episode was about, actually. Yeah. Hypnosis and past it's, memory regression. It is fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he takes I mean, her back beyond birth and then she starts telling these stories of living past lives. Mm-hmm. That's really? interesting. Yeah, it's it's. I find that stuff amazing. I love that stuff. Um, but what was the other one we did about uh, E? What's Dorothy her name? Edie. Dorothy Edie. Yeah, who had a past life in Egypt. Oh, Same. yeah, that was an interesting one. Yeah, it's almost like a collection of anomalous phenomena, like centering around this one location. Not all of which necessarily mm-hmm. are, are are connected. Which puts me in the mind of you know people like John Keel and who writes about what he calls high strangeness, which is you know, when you're, you have like these wind, what they call window areas, which is a place that just seems inherently odd where somewhere where the veil is thin, as they tend to say, meaning that you, you tend to get these, what would seem to me to be unrelated phenomena. Like you'll have UFO sightings, but you'll also have sort of cryptid sightings and you'll also have, I mean, the Montauk monster is interesting. Like, do you guys know about ditch? uh, Sorry. Do you guys know about like the, I don't know if it's real, but just growing up, I always heard about the secretive animal, like disease center. Um, (laughs) What are you talking about? You don't know about that in the in Long Island? No, I mean, let's hear it. Uh, well, okay, you want to start the with the Montauk monster then? <laughs> yeah, sure. So I guess the Montauk monster is July of 2008. The carcass of this beaked hairless creature washed up on the shores of Montauk. And three friends claim they found the animal at Ditch Plains Beach, which is located just four miles west of Camp Hero. So... I don't know if you have you seen this thing. Yeah, this this so, reminds me very much of the the hairless dog chupacabras. That yeah, so yeah. they think that, or most scientists think that it's probably just a really really badly decayed raccoon, <laughs> um, which is but not impossible. About it, it is it looks like it has a beak. It has a beak. Yeah. So the the local papers we're speculating about is that the core that washed up from plume island or plum island i mean not plume um washed from plum island and they believe that it's from an experiment from so there's allegedly a secretive government animal disease center uh that and they believe that there's just a creature that they made there that something went horribly wrong and then it escaped and died and i don't know if maybe i'm this just me because i grew up here but I always heard of, I know, I know it was called uh, Plum Island, but I'd always heard of, uh, there was an island where they did experiments on animals Amazing. growing up and I believed it. I mean, yeah, just like splicing, there's always stories of like splicing creatures together, making different things. It was like a secretive lab. I mean, I don't know how, what, how realistic that is. Well, but, it, it, there's a definite folkloric precedence for this because like across the States, there are particular regions that have their own local versions of, you know, boogeymen like the goat man or whatever. Like mm-hmm. he's kind of associated with Maryland, I believe, but like there's lots of states that have their own version. And the backstory is usually that there was some secret, you know, some secret lab doing animal experiments and some guy got fused with an animal and ran mm-hmm. off into the woods with an ax. Yeah. And then I there's mean, other places that have the, you know, the, the little kids with the swollen heads. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. don't know. Is there an equivalent in New York of that? Um, I don't think so in New York, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and they, they generally have the backstory again of, you know, there were experiments being done in some secret location. They all they all have a very kind of a science, science fiction feel to them, these particular yeah. kind of legends. Yeah. Very, very kind of mid to late 20th century sort of a vibe. I in on Long, I guess I don't know if you say in or on Long Island Sound. I guess in the Long Island Sound, um, there have there are a lot of abandoned islands that are private, and if you go out there, like David's Island, I believe it's called, there's just wild boar running around there, which aren't what? exactly native. Yeah, they can't <laughs> leave. Um, I I don't know why they're there. I would guess it they could be ancient, like like just like generational. Because there's a good chance that like someone like Christopher Columbus just dumped them there. Because that's what they used to do. Yeah, they um, yeah they carried animals yeah. for food, and yeah. they, would they, they would what they what the Spanish would do is they would leave uh they leave pigs, let them like reproduce, then they come back and they'd kill all the pigs and put new ones in, so that way they had a food supply every time they showed that's up. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So it could be something like that. Has anyone but, like connected the Montauk monster to the to the facility? Is that is that part of uh, the lore? So yeah, it, it's connected, but it's connected in the same way that uh like. It's connected in the same way that um, that when I wear like when you wear your pajamas inside out, you get a snow day. <laughs> it's connected, well, but yeah, I it doesn't mean, make I think, any sense. I think <laughs> the connection is that there's supposed to be all of this crazy experimentation going on with children, mm-hmm. and you know, if you believe that, it's not too far fetched to believe that they were also conducting these crazy experiments on animals and doing. Yeah. So, well, like anything I, weird that shows up in that area is like people are likely to tie it in with the. Well, with the facility. they also actually they found it four miles away from Camp Hero, so I think that's the real connection. Yeah. Because people are concerned that, uh, I guess not concerned, but I guess people assume that it must be related if it's so close. Tell me more about the kidnapped children. Okay. What's the, what's the story there? I think the general overview is that they would just grab kids off the street or drug addicts. Which, how many kids were drug addicts in the 60s? I personally don't know. Was there a lot of those? But yeah, so I, so basically I think they would just pick up these kids off the street and then they'd run all sorts of experiments on them. Yeah. And I think that they would, it, the idea was to create this group of like superhuman soldiers that they could brainwash and um, use to fight the Nazis. So there's this group. <laughs> there's, it's all for a good cause, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but stealing children, not so much. <laughs> and so this group in conspiracy theories has become known as the Montauk Boys because it was, you know, a lot of young boys. And they actually have records of like a spike in missing children at this time. And the idea was that, you know, the government was taking these children, you know, putting them in the basement of the radar tower and conducting all of these psychological experiments and, you know, experimenting with time travel and mind control, all of that. Mm -hmm. Actually, Duncan Cameron, he claims to have been one of the people who was experimented on. He was allegedly one of the Montauk boys who had psychic powers. And the story goes that there was this chair that he was in called like the Montauk chair or whatever. The Montauk chair. Yeah. <laughs> and so apparently in one of his sessions, according to him, one of his sessions, his 
self-conscious was so strong that it projected a hairy, horny monster, horned monster. Jeez, I said the wrong thing. A hairy, horned monster, kind of like what the Krampus looks like. And it was eating and it was Ooh, eating and sma- it was eating everything in sight until um, until they finally destroyed the Montauk chair. But yeah, it ra- apparently, according to them, it ran around just eating literally everything. But it when, when they got rid of the chair, what he disappears? As yeah, well? it, it disappeared. Oh, it was really angry that the chair existed. Apparently, so it uh, it ate everything, which means like ammunition, paperwork, desks. Is monster All of the just hungry? It's a hungry, hungry monster. This this kind of feels to me like Skinwalker in that, you know, people just have added stuff to the story over the years. Like any weird thing they can think of, sure, that was going on there too, because mm-hmm. it's just this window area. And does it matter? Does it make sense? Does it fit in with this? There's not. I mean, we all look at different kinds of legends, and some of them are very disciplined. They have a core function, and they're about mm-hmm. something, and they mean something, and they. They seem to be explaining something about our our paranoias, our our anxieties, our our worries. Whereas this one is just, it's just people are just having a bit of fun. Some science fiction writer is, yeah, you know, throw werewolves. Yeah, sure, why not? You know, <laughs> <laughs> psychic kids. Yeah, why not throw it in there? Which is, it makes it hard to study because there's no coherent narrative to it. Right. The the other tough part too is that a lot of these people who have come forward saying they're Montauk boys or time travelers, uh they will say stuff like and they, they don't provide any evidence at all like this one guy claims they've gone i think it's like 20 uh 2000 like 2637 he went to that year and but he provided no information about it no evidence that could possibly support it it's like for someone who's been traveling to the future a lot if you want to be credible, just say, tell them one thing that's going to happen in like a year. And then when it comes to you, like, or like, okay, sure, I'll buy it. Yeah. That's like the one thing that made it a little difficult to research is a lot of these people just like, they just didn't provide any evidence that they actually time traveled. They just said they did. Yeah. And I think where a lot of this comes from too is during this century, the early, early to mid um, 20th century, there was some like U.S. government ex- human experimentation going on, confirmed. So like there was the Tuskegee uh, yeah. syphilis study where they knew that all of these men had syphilis and knew that there was a treatment for it, but didn't give it to them so they could study them. Or MK Ultra, mm-hmm. which you know in in the 1950s. The government experimented on these hospital patients and prisoners, these different... And also college students. Oh, really? Actually, want to know a fun little aside of, about MKUltra? So, you know the Unabomber was yes, kind of a Kaczynski. normal... Yeah, that's he was... Yeah, he, was Kaczynski, like, he was... I mean, he had issues. He was kind of like an incel, as you'd call him today, beforehand. But he signed up for a... Um, turned out that it was actually part of MKUltra... And after that, like he, his brain was kind of fried. And that's around the time he started becoming violent and became the Unabomber, like shortly after that. So yeah. it did actually have negative side effects and cause mass casualties unintended. The main objective of this was to kind of force confessions and interrogations and that kind of thing. And they were practicing all these new age torture methods. So I'm not surprised that it would mess someone up like that yeah so i think if there is a point to stories like montauk it is 
it's like a the public interpreting you know what you're talking about the fact that governments will do stuff like this and then expressing that fear expressing that disappointment or that 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 horror in mm-hmm. in ve- almost like exaggerated science fictional ways because some mm-hmm. of that stuff in reality was pretty out mk ultra was pretty dang out there and, and they were looking at like can we really get people to have psychic powers a little bit later on you know, what was it operation stargate and all of that sort of thing mm-hmm. so like the stuff in Montauk, the fact that it has this weird science fiction vibe to it, it didn't come out of nowhere. You know, this is an expression yeah. of the anxiety of people having had with these real life projects. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so the Montauk project, I think one of the best lasting legacies is it spawned the wonderful show on Netflix, Stranger Things. Um, it was actually titled Montauk and then they changed it to, they changed the location from Montauk to... Indiana, um, I think. Indiana. I can't remember where the town is, but a lot, there's a lot of parallels. And the interesting thing is, I sort of understand where they get this whole thing with a dem, was a demigorgon that comes out is if there's this story that existed well before then of this person self conscious creating a hairy horned monster that eats everything in sight. <laughs> I could see how that inspired uh, a demigorgon. Only it's the idea different. that you've got this ordinary town, but there's a, an, a military installation there, and you know, secret, secret stuff is yeah. going on. And if you if you look back at even older older shows and older films, like I rewatched um, The Mist recently. It's got it's got the same. Oh, I it's got the same it. idea that you know, in 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 towns anywhere, there could be. Mm-hmm. And it, what's really interesting about that film is that the whatever's going on with the military, you get very little information about it. It's largely left to your imagination. All we know is they were messing with something they shouldn't have, and then terrible things happen, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a recurring trope in, in both in fiction and in sort of real-life legends and, and lore, which I, I find really interesting. Yeah. So this is something that I found interesting about, um, I forgot to mention, about Camp Hero. So before it became an official park, this guy, Brian Minnick and his friends used to explore the radar tower because before it was a national park, before it was like a, so it went from, so it went from military base to national park to the New York state uh, park service. That's the transition it took. And so Minnick and his friends, they used to go in and explore the radar tower and while they have never found any definitive evidence of government cover-ups, they did discover some doc, some sealed documents that suggested that the infrastructure of camp hero is far more complex. But what I think is more interesting is they have all, they found all these records of foods of like mass food orders to the radar tower for like quite a few years after it was decommissioned. So that really oh, kind of interesting. so that really kind of suggests that um, the so did they orc, imply that the structure was larger than it like was what yeah. it was like so underground all, sections or are, something? yeah there are a ton of sealed off like um, manholes and stuff that you can't get into is that for real can like yeah. have they been that's that's a fact there's photos of them class brilliant <laughs> but so there's actually I don't really, I don't trust the New York Post. I think that they're a, a garbage news source. Oh, it was if, NY Post. Yeah, they're not. They're not. Great. No, I mean, so, so that, that's not what I heard from them. I've read that elsewhere, but New York Post is a garbage news source. So I don't know about this next story is true. They're only good for sports, but otherwise they're trash. <laughs> um, so the New York Post interviewed some guy and he, he's like works or he's like a historian 
And what the guy's belief is there's some evidence that in the 50s, the government might have actually buried nuclear waste deep underground. And they created this whole like narrative around the Montauk projects to scare people off so they don't get radiation poisoning. There is, is there is a precedent for that. Like the US government has used sort of paranormal tropes to cover up real things. There's Yeah. I mean they especially so, with UFOs, they they've done that a few times in the fifties and again in the eighties they've used it. They've propagated ideas about UFOs amongst, you know, UFO uh, researchers in order to kind of cover up for usually like, you know, new kinds of aircraft designs that they're working on. Yeah. You've got the Paul Benowitz thing in the eighties and Mm-hmm. arguably Roswell in the 40s and the early 50s. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's, it's it's interesting. I mean, that's one possibility. And they do, they absolutely do bury nuclear waste like in the continental oh, yeah. US. Aren't, aren't yeah. there places in, is it Wyoming or somewhere where they've just closed out a mountain? Five Mile Island, hold up. Is that what, yeah, yeah. That's a nuclear reactor. Yeah. That's like, if that blew up, that would be really bad for me and Emmy. <laughs> And there was a big, there was a big problem with that, wasn't there? Some disaster. Oh uh, yeah, it's decommissioned, but it's like radioactive waste lasts a long time. So, yes, oh no, actually, Three Mile Island is in Pennsylvania. Never mind, that's in Pennsylvania. It'll, I'm sure the radiation will. Still I, I, I could have sworn there was a nuclear plant off in Long Island. In Camp Hero. Indian Point. That's what I was thinking. In Buchanan. I'll I'll bring things to to wrap up, folks. Any any points we didn't hit yet that you'd like to mention? Um, what really probably did trigger all these conspiracy theories is that the government disguised their military base as a coastal fishing village. So all the official military structures were designed to look like cottages with fake. Uh, wood siding and paint and painted on windows the gymnasium was disguised as a church as i said before and then finally the biggest transition was the army deactivated the base in 1947 and removed all the coastal artillery in 1951 camp hero reopened or or was transferred to the air force as a radar station and they installed anti-aircraft artillery and then they owned it until 1982. And then in 1984, the land was deemed environmentally important due to the ecosystems. So then it was transferred to the National Park Services and transferred to New York State and became open to the public, not until 2002. There was a long period, which also I think really fixes, helps with the conspiracy, where there was nothing going on there and you weren't allowed to enter Camp Hero. But that was by and large because of unexploded explosives and stuff. Mm-hmm. And apparently, when you go there, it's still to this day, the first thing they do is they hand you a pamphlet tell, from the Army Corps of Engineers telling you what to do if you find an unexploded bullet, grenade, landmine, or any other munition. Thank you for having us on. It's yeah, been really this was fun. a lot of fun. Yeah, always, always great to um, work with folks from different parts of the world, especially people connected to the strange stories we like to investigate. Um, where can people find your show or your other work? Or is there anything you'd like so to? They can find our podcast pretty much anywhere. It's just Misfits and Mysteries. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. We're at podcast underscore misfits. And we write blogs too. And we'd appreciate it if everyone checked us out. Um, it's just misfitsandmysteries.com. We work hard on our blogs. We don't get enough views on them, in my opinion. <laughs> I'll, I'll put links to all that stuff uh, on the show notes so you can awesome. check them out. So, uh, Steve and Emmy, big thanks. Thanks for talking to us today.
You've been listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and if you'd like to get in touch, reach out to us on Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland, or Instagram, where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. You can also support us over on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Wide Atlantic Weird, and everyone who supports at any level gets one extra bonus episode every week. Last week's bonus episode was myself and Ali Keen talking about the order and uh, kind of extra sort of addition to our recent American Militia episode. So if you enjoy that sort of thing, there's a little bit more of it there for patrons. Next week, all going well, we're going to take a look at uh, Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the 1977 film, and make connections to the work of J. Allen Hynek and the larger world of ufology and that movie's effect on it. So if you were a regular listener, our next episode, all going well, we're going to take a look at cryptozoology and uh, dinosaurs in the Congo and the effects of that on neo-colonialism. So as always, until then, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Thank you.